Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, today we're continuing in our series called AD 30, and what we mean there is this is a life of Christ, kind of in chronological order, as best as uh, scholars have been able to put his life together in chronological order. I've entitled our message today, The Key. When I, I've researched a little bit in the past the history of locks. The oldest known lock that we have found was found by archaeologists in the palace ruins of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Remember, that was the city that Jonah was to go and preach to. So we have a lock that we found in Nineveh dated about 2,000 years before Christ. It was actually a forerunner of the pin-tumbler style of lock, which would still be used today. It was actually wooden. It utilized a series of pegs to prevent the bolt from opening without the key. But many people in the ancient world didn't have traditional locks to prevent valuables. Jesus talked about this a little bit, people hiding their valuables, and the thief would break in and steal, maybe break through the side of your house and dig into a treasure box. In India... They came up with a very inventive way to protect valuables in the ancient world. During the reign of Emperor Anam, people were very inventive. Valuables were sealed into large blocks of wood, so you would basically create some sort of a wooden box, a very heavy wooden box. The blocks of wood were marked, so you would put maybe your family emblem or name on that. You would take this to the palace. And in the palace, these large blocks of wood that would contain your gold and silver and precious metals, other things, perhaps money, they were placed inside pools, like you would think of a swimming pool, in the palace, but these weren't swimming pools. Sometimes they would actually be sunken, so you might take great rocks, put it on these, on these sort of wooden uh, treasure boxes, you would sink them. Sometimes they were simply put out on an island in these pools, and they were safe safer than anything else in the kingdom because they were guarded and the guards were a group of crocodiles that they hardly ever gave any food to. So nobody would want to venture over to the island, you would be eaten alive. Access was limited. Today there's a lock on everything. Your car has a lock. Your home has a lock. Your email has a lock and a password. Your bank account is set up with security. And dare I say, heaven, heaven needs a key to open. Now that sort of causes a problem for us because we don't want to believe there's a key to heaven. Jesus actually referred to the keys to the kingdom when he was talking to his disciples and he said he was leaving them the keys to the kingdom because we don't automatically get in. But we sort of have a problem with that today in our world. Because we want to believe that God is at the end of every religious path. That if you're just sincere, if you try hard, that's good enough. We want the pluralist to be right. That there is no single way. That all religions have some merit. That they overlap in many ways. And that truth is somewhat relative. And Jesus may be a way, but we don't really want him to just be the way. Morality is the key. Do your best, that's the key because that sort of fits our sense of justice. 
doing our best, we think, should be enough. Being our best, we think, should be rewarded. God should be pleased with that. If he's not, he's got a problem. We should never spend our whole lives being a good citizen, contributing to the welfare of others, being a moral person, loving our neighbors, raising our children to be good people, and then have to question whether heaven is open to us. That's sort of the way we think of eternity. Not so fast. I want you to turn to John chapter 3, verses 1 to 16. It's a somewhat familiar passage of Scripture. And it is interestingly in a very interesting place in Jesus' ministry, which I had not known uh, before I was studying this this week, because I typically have not taught the chronology of Jesus' life, but have gone through New Testament books for the most part. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees, that's a religious sect that you've heard of. His name was Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews, probably on their Sanhedrin, their Council of 70 people, sort of their supreme court. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi or teacher, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, and the definite article is in here in the Greek, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, speaking now about an event 1,500 years before, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved, doesn't mean in degree, it means this is how God loved. For God so loved, he loved in this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Three quick points here, and then some applications. First, lostness shows up in unexpected places. Now, this is one of the great interactions with Jesus that we find in all of the Scripture. It's a very popular story. What is a little bit uh, interesting to me is how early this is in Jesus' ministry, so some gospel writers arrange their material thematically. They don't necessarily shoot for chronology. 
But we do have scholars who spend their whole lives searching through the Gospels, looking at the different places where Jesus was, the chronology of the Gospels, because in some cases they are speaking chronologically, in some cases they are not. And they put together, based on when Jesus is in Jerusalem or Galilee or Gentile territory, they put together a chronology of his life. And there's a little debate about this, but for the most part, if you read a chronological Bible, this takes place very early in Jesus' ministry. In fact, this is his first visit to Jerusalem, the capital. Before this, very little is recorded that Jesus has said. All that you have in the Gospels before this passage, if you look at all four Gospels, is Jesus' qualifications, you know, his genealogy, that he's the son of David, son of Abraham, he's Jewish, he's from the line of David, etc., etc. You have the ministry of John the Baptist, which was authenticating that Jesus is the Messiah. You have the temptation of Jesus, which interestingly, in my mind, is a qualification issue. And the reason I say that is this. If you look at the temptation of Jesus where Satan says to Jesus, you know, if you do this or if you do that or if you are the Son of God, that clause could just as easily be interpreted since you are the Son of God. Since you are the Son of God, do this. So sort of Jesus' qualifications literally end with Satan acknowledging that God has come in the flesh. You have the calling of the first disciples. You have Jesus' first miracle where he turns water into wine. And then this. This is likely the first recorded teaching of any theological substance of Jesus, of God's Son walking this planet, which I think is significant. I'd never looked at it that way. Now, evidently, there's a little time gone by. Again, we just have small snippets of Jesus' life. The Gospel of John later states that if we had everything in Jesus' life, all the world could not contain the books. Now, he's using hyperbole to make the point. We just have a small snippet of Jesus' three years with us. That's it. But Jesus has been performing miracles near Jerusalem. The last chapter before this ends by saying that, that this is Jesus' first official trip to Jerusalem. He's been performing miracles. This is the center of worship, the center of religious activity. And it says a lot of people were starting to follow him, were starting to believe in him. But it also says that Jesus sort of wasn't trusting where they were coming from. They were believing in him somewhat superficially. I mean, if you can perform miracles, you can do a stadium event, right? You know, if you're, if you're great, people are going to follow you. They're going to show up. Like my Milwaukee Bucks, by the way, just as an aside. World champions. We are the champions. All right, anyway. So... Jesus is performing miracles. He's doing stadium events. People are showing up. Why wouldn't they? And they're believing in him to some degree. And that would have been noticed by the religious leaders of his day. And in particular, around Jerusalem, a group called the Sanhedrin. About 70 individuals who made up this group. Nicodemus was a member of this group. The Sanhedrin was made up of Pharisees. We'll talk about them in a moment. They take a lot of heat in the scriptures, but they're the most devout group of people in the days of Jesus that you'll find. The Sadducees, a little different theological group than the Pharisees. A little more liberal, you might say. The Pharisees were the conservatives. The Sadducees were sort of the liberals of Jesus' day. And then other leaders, political leaders, etc., uh, of that era. So there's about 70 individuals. They're Pharisees, Sadducees, and others. The most pious were the Pharisees. Nicodemus was one of them. 
Now the word Pharisee is best translated sort of a separated one. He was sort of a, a Pharisee was somebody who sort of withdrew from society and sort of had a unique brotherhood with just other Pharisees. Interestingly, although we see all kinds of evidence of their influence in the New Testament, there were never more than six to 10,000 Pharisees at any time in Jewish history. It's a pretty small group in a nation of millions, six to 10,000. And where they originated was they believed that if they could create enough obedience to God in their own lives and among their countrymen, that God would restore sort of their nation to glory. So they believed Israel was in captivity because of their disobedience to God. And on that, if you look at the Old Testament, we kind of agree with that. So they're thinking if we can get enough people obeying God, he'll sort of bring back the glory years. This group of individuals would have memorized, generally, the first five books of the Old Testament. Now think about that. Remember when you were little and maybe you went to Awana or maybe you do this in your own life, some scripture memory, and you think you're doing good when you've got 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 verses that you can recall? Try Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then if you're really good, you start going on to the rest of the Old Testament. This was their life. And they entered their brotherhood, as it was called, by pledging in front of multiple witnesses that they would keep every detail of the scribal law. The key word there is scribal law. Not God's law, the scribal law. Let me explain. So they would begin, the scribes, which I'm going to call religious lawyers, they would begin with the, an Old Testament command. And I think the Pharisees figured there were 500 and some of these commands that they would work with. But let's start with one of the ten. So they took the Old Testament command, thou shall not work on the Sabbath day. So it's one of the ten commandments. They began with that Old Testament command. The scribes, or the legal experts, then took that command, and they defined what constituted work on the Sabbath. So you know, at the end of a sermon, I usually give three or four applications. Well, these guys spent their whole day, every day, thinking of applications to God's law. So when it comes to the Sabbath law, get this, they took God's one command and they created 24 chapters of Sabbath regulations. Not 24 regulations, 24 chapters of regulations. You find that eventually recorded in what's called the Mishnah. Now, there was all sorts of commentary around this, which was eventually recorded in what's called the Talmud. So you have 24 chapters on Sabbath law, what you can do on a Sunday. Then you get to the Talmud, and there's 64 columns of commentary explaining these 24 chapters, which means they had rules about everything you could do on a Sunday. If you're ever thinking, you know, God really does want us to take a day of rest, and is it really okay that I'm sort of, you know, carving up the garden with a rototiller on Sunday afternoon while well, they had a rule about it. They had a rule about whether you could watch sports on Sunday. Now, I don't know how you could go through Sunday without watching sports since most NFL games on, are on Sunday. It's a part of my worship experience, but they had rules about it. They had rules for how far you could walk. They had rules for how much you could carry as you were walking on a Sunday. They had rules for what kind of knots you could tie because the knots might be associated with vocations and therefore you were working. If you're tying a sailor's knot on a Sunday, that doesn't feel okay. You know, but if you're tying your hair up, and they literally talked about this, ladies, that was okay. 
They talked about what a doctor could and couldn't do on a Sunday. You know, you could keep somebody from dying, Aaron, but you better not make them better because that's too much like work. If your donkey fell in a ditch, there were rules about whether you could help your donkey out before it looked like work. Every ethical option was covered. Every one. They thought of all of them. And their goal was to, as they said, build a fence around the law. And this is what they meant by that. God's got this command. It's right here. It's don't break the Sabbath. We're going to build a fence around that so we never get close to breaking the Sabbath by creating these thousands and thousands and thousands of rules that help define Sabbath ethics. By being more conservative than God, the Pharisees lacked one major spiritual trait, a need for God. I mean, they made themselves so good that they lost a sense of need. If you are worried about keeping, you know, 50,000 rules, there's a chance you might become self-righteous instead of God-righteous. And that's what happened. But here's what I want you to get from this, and this is an incredibly important point. These Pharisees were better than us. I know they get ripped on a lot by Jesus and other people. I want you to have no doubt. Nicodemus was a better human being than Pastor Paul, than any elder at Bethany, past, present, or future, and better than any of you. Even better than Dee Dee who walks into heaven just because she was married to me on her good works. They were better than all of us. They were the most ethical people in the history of the planet. Jesus is creating quite a stir. He's performing miracles near Jerusalem. This is where all these Pharisees, not all of them, but many of them are located. And these miracles stood out as authenticating that he had some sort of divine origin. I mean, nobody's thinking he's the Messiah yet. Maybe the disciples are. John the Baptist is. These other people aren't. They're just going to the stadium event. This dude can do stuff nobody else can do. I mean, People are getting healed of diseases they've had for years. People are walking who are lame. People who are blind can now see. I mean, he's got some powers. God is with him. He's unique. Nicodemus, as a leader among the Sanhedrin, is thinking, we need to get to the bottom of this because it's our job. We're sort of the, you know, we're sort of the doorkeepers to the truth here. So Nicodemus wants to know how and why, and he goes right to the heart of the matter. He says to Jesus, nobody can do this stuff unless God is with him. Second point, key to the kingdom or salvation is rebirth, not reformation. Jesus got right to the point. Went right to the born again issue, this term that we see here. No Pharisee, including Nicodemus, would have much of a sense of personal need because they were so busy keeping, you know, 10, 20, 30,000 rules. Theirs was a world of rules, kept rules. They didn't just know the rules and ignore them. I mean, they kept them meticulously. Theirs was a life of meticulous obedience. It was moral reformation at its best. It was pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and making yourself the best possible person. It was righteousness by self through hard work and discipline. So it was self-righteousness, which creates a lack of need for salvation. 
righteousness from God, any sense of lostness. Those are hard nuts to crack. People who are better than the rest of us because then they just look at themselves and say, how could God ever reject me? I'm really good. That was Nicodemus. And Jesus immediately lays bare any hope that comes from self-righteousness when he says to Nicodemus that he is void of spiritual life. Think about that. The best dude on the planet at that time possibly. I mean, he is Mother Teresa in pants. He's Billy Graham. He's better than all of us. And Jesus is saying, dude, that's in the Greek, dude, you are lost as lost can be. You may be the best person on the planet, but you are completely void of spiritual life. The person who is better than all of us is completely void of spiritual life. Jesus says it multiple ways. He says to Nicodemus first, he just says, you need to be born again. He says what's missing. You need to be born again. Now, that word, you know, when it gets to theological dictionaries, is regeneration. The word we would understand in, in English, regeneration. The act whereby God's spirit sort of creates spiritual life out of what was before that, dead. Paul talks about this. We're dead without Jesus, without his uh, regenerating power in our lives. Now, born again can mean born again a second time, which is clearly the way Nicodemus took it. The word also can mean above or born from above. Nicodemus sort of debates the idea with Jesus. He assumes it means born again. He starts debating with Jesus. Can a man be born a second time? And, and I don't think Nicodemus is really asking the question. I think he's smart enough to know you can't go back inside a mommy but he still throws it out there. It's not like we can go back inside of our mother and be born again, so what do you mean by this, Jesus? Well, Jesus says you need to be born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. So now they get the details a little bit, and, and there's big debate in Christianity about what's actually being said there, and I'll just highlight that. Some say that, that Jesus is referring to physical and spiritual birth, you know, a woman's water breaks right before birth, that he's saying water and the spirit, physical and spiritual. Some say this is what's called a hendiasis. You can just forget that word, but what it means is the word and would not mean and, it would mean even, like be born of water, even the spirit, and therefore there in that situation, water and the spirit would be the same thing. Water would be a metaphor for the spirit. Some say this is referring to Christian baptism, which really didn't exist yet, so I don't think Jesus would be saying something to Nicodemus he could not understand, but he could take it as referring to the baptism of John the Baptist, which was a sign of repentance, which had been sweeping that region at this point. But either way, Jesus is referring to a point of spiritual birth that the best dude on the planet had never experienced. And Jesus states it this way, since Nicodemus is looking for something really practical. You know, we can't be born again. You know, that's not going to happen. So Jesus said, actually, this is real. But it isn't as obvious as you're looking for, Nicodemus. It's kind of like wind. You see the results of wind, but you don't see the wind. There's something that happens inside of us spiritually. It's not like another birth, birth. A little more mystical. You see its effects, but you can't see the wind itself. Well, Nicodemus is struggling with all of this. Jesus is, you know, 
he's kind of, Nicodemus is kind of the dumbest smart person that day in the city of Jerusalem, you know? You know people like that. Sometimes they're brilliant over here and you tell them something practical and they just can't get it. That's what's going on with Nicodemus. He's sort of like the dumbest smart person in Jerusalem that day on spiritual issues. And he says to Jesus, how can this be? And Jesus sort of shoots back. You are like not just an average person here, Nicodemus. You are the teacher in Israel, which is also indicating sort of the pecking order in the Sanhedrin that Nicodemus was sort of at the top. In other words, Nicodemus, you are the person in this nation, God's chosen people in the Old Testament. He gave them his covenants. You're the person who should understand this. Your theology of the Old Testament should inform you. You are the teacher. And you don't get this? Why? How can that be? How can Nicodemus be the dumbest smart person in Israel on the issue of his need for righteousness? Well, here's, here's why. That's, that's the power of self-righteousness to create sort of a spiritual blindness in our hearts. The better we think we are on our own, and I'm not saying we shouldn't try to be good, but the better we think we are, the more we think we don't need God. Self-righteousness abolishes our sense of lostness, our sense of need. It, it sort of replaces being born again in our minds because we're thinking we're already there. I mean, how could God not accept this? That's what we think. I love this illustration. I know I've shared it before, but it's the best illustration I have of this whole situation. If you go to Auschwitz today, or Dachau, and you go to the concentration camps that litter Europe, you're gonna find in many of them uh, you know, ironwork that might be in the gate or a sign above the gate with these words, and forgive my German, Arbeit macht free. It means work makes free. Work will liberate you. Works will give you freedom. So the Nazis, as they're rounding up Jews and gypsies and others, putting them in concentration camps, are also lying to them, saying, it's not the end here. You work hard. You work hard. You'll get your freedom. It was a lie, a false hope. The Nazis made the people believe hard work would equal liberation, but the promised liberation was horrifying suffering and death. Our bike mocked free. One reason that phrase haunts me says this writer, is because it is the spiritual lie of this age. It is a satanic lie. It's a religious lie. It is a false hope, an impossible dream for many people in the world. They believe their good works will be great enough to outweigh their bad works, allowing them to stand before God in eternity and say, you owe me the right to enter heaven. You owe me the right to enter heaven. I'm good enough. It's the hope of every false religion. Arbeit macht free. But works don't liberate us. 
It's the reason, though, Nicodemus was the dumbest smart person in Jerusalem that day. Because he was the best of us. He was better than you. He was better than me. He was better than everybody. And he was as lost as could be. Third, the new birth is grounded in the cross. The ultimate atonement. Now I find this fascinating and you don't have to get excited about this, but I'm kind of excited about this. I'm shocked that this is potentially the first major teaching section of Jesus' life, and he brings up the cross. Think about that. If the people who put together the chronological Bible are right, if they've got the timing of Jesus' ministry right, we often think of Jesus' allusions to the cross as sort of the last trip to Jerusalem when his disciples are all gung-ho about you know, more of a, uh, an, an earthly movement a secular movement. Jesus will sort of be king and they'll be his generals and in his cabinet. And so they don't understand the cross. But if this really is early in Jesus' ministry, think about it. If this is his first primary teaching, he's talking about the cross already. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The term for himself so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved, he loved in this way, he loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is on record three years before his death, burial, and resurrection. He's on record about the cross. Even his disciples struggled with the cross concept till after the resurrection wasn't exactly a secret. Now, I'm not saying it was a part of every sermon. It wasn't. But he's mentioning it early in his ministry here, possibly in his first major teaching section. So Jesus brings up a story from 15, maybe 1,400 years before. A kind of a disgustingly gross story. Sorry. Israel was disobedient. They're sort of out in the wilderness here and God is punishing them, and serpents or vipers bit many of them. Now, I would love a story without snakes because I hate snakes, and I'm a little concerned that this had to be the story of redemption here, but anyway, it was. It's what Jesus brought up. So in the 1,400 years earlier, they're out in the wilderness, they're complaining, and God allowed this den of vipers to evidently get to the surface and they start biting Israelites. And there's no treatment, there's no antidote for this. So Moses was commanded to make a bronze serpent and lift it up in the camp. And to look on that elevated serpent was to place faith in God for healing. It was a sign of repentance and healing. And Jesus says, just like that took place 14 or 1,500 years ago, a story they all knew well. And the same words about the snake being lifted up are the words used about crucifixion victims. Even the Son of Man will be lifted up. Looking on him in faith, just like looking on that bronze serpent in faith brought healing, looking on the Son of Man, looking on Jesus three years from now in faith will bring this new life, this rebirth. It's the way you can find spiritual healing. He says 
to the best man alive in the nation. From his first recorded teaching moment, this was always the plan. Everything else is secondary. The miracles, yeah, that's a big deal. They gave him credibility. They allowed him to do the stadium event. And he cared about people. He had compassion. But it wasn't about the miracles. The miracles just authenticated who he was. It gave him a platform as God among us. He spoke with authority because he was God. He understood the scriptures because he wrote them. But the cross was the plan all along. Because in the cross, when the Son of Man is lifted up, we find healing. In the cross, we find atonement, payment for our sins. He died in our place. The wrath of the Father was poured out on the Son on the cross. Because of that, in the cross, we find forgiveness. In the cross, because it was followed by the resurrection, we find eternal life. It's our only hope. It doesn't matter how good we are, we're not good enough. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, don't be the dumbest smart person on the planet. You need God. You need to be transformed from the inside out. You need a new birth because none of us are good enough to do it on our own. Just a couple of thoughts as we close. First, we underestimate the righteousness gap. I mean, nobody thinks they're bad, you know? And that's one reason people kind of don't like Christianity. You know, it's all that worm theology. I'm a bad person. I need God because I'm not good enough. Well, the Bible teaches no matter how good we are, if we're going to get to heaven based on our own personal righteousness, you pretty much have to knock it out of the park as in be perfect. And I think we'd all admit none of us hit that lever. Nobody thinks they're bad. They've surveyed groups of people. I've often, I've quoted prisoner surveys to you. Prisoners think they're better than average ethical people. We don't see ourselves objectively. Everyone believes they're better than average. And with ethics, it's no different. And with access to heaven, it's no different. We believe heaven is ours, of course, because I'm a good dude. Or do that. young people had lavish plans for their pending wedding nuptials. The venue they selected had it all. Swimming pool with a waterfall, a hot tub, sauna, tennis courts, gazebos, even a bowling alley. They were scheduled to have the ceremony on Saturday and a catered brunch on Sunday. The one thing they didn't have to do their wedding at this venue was permission. Property owner Nathan Finkel had met with the couple months prior when they posed as potential buyers of his property which was listed for sale for $5 million. When they later asked Finkel if they could stage their wedding there, he declined. So we're not going to buy your house, but we want to have our wedding there. But that didn't stop the couple, Wilson and Jones, from sending out invitations to guests to gather at the property. According to attorney Keith Polyakov, who represented the upscale suburban locale, the couple made a critical miscalculation. The guy figured it was a vacant House and didn't realize that the guy still lived on the property in a different home. So they're planning their wedding and reception at what they think is an empty house for sale. They had no idea that this guy still lived there in another home. You know the shock that must have been on his face when he showed up at the gate and the owner was home. Indeed, once Nathan saw that Wilson has arrived to begin setting up for the wedding, he called police to compel them to vacate his property. 
Nathan told the 911 dispatch, I have people trespassing on my property. They keep harassing me. They're calling me. They're saying they're having a wedding here. I don't know what's going on. I just want it to stop. The people left without incident. No charges were filed. That's how we are with God. We're kind of that way with God. What do you mean I can't get into heaven? That's my place. I'm a good guy. How dare you say no? Who do you think you are, God? Yes. The one who sets the standards. The one who holds the keys to the kingdom. The one who is so holy and righteous and just that of course we can't get in on our own. Second, good works done for the wrong reason are actually an insult to God. So what do you mean good works are an insult to God? Well, actually, it's part of the theme of Galatians. Galatians is sort of trying to correct a heresy in the early church that, you know, by, by doing good things, and specifically uh, the early church was struggling with whether Christians had to be Jews because the Jews were God's chosen people to get into heaven. So whether Christians, Christian men, had to be circumcised in order to become Jews to get to heaven, that was sort of a big debate in the early church, a painful debate, I might add, but a big debate. And Paul makes the point in Galatians that if righteousness can come, if being right with God can come by you being a better person, by you just trying a little harder, then Paul's point is this. Then Jesus really died for nothing. Jesus died in vain. Think about that. To the person who thinks they can earn heaven, you are insulting God's greatest gift to you, his son on the cross. Because what you're saying is, you know, Jesus on the cross, that's kind of great, touching story, makes for a good Easter story, resurrection thing's kind of cool, but I don't need it. You know, you can get there by Jesus, but I'm just going to work my way there because I'm good. It's an insult to what God has done, his greatest gift, the reason Jesus came into the human family. Third, nobody earns it. That's the beauty of the gospel. Salvation is different. It operates differently. In 1871, there was a great fire down in the States in the city of Chicago. It destroyed much of the city. But surprisingly, the flames actually started on the other side of the Chicago River. So how did the fire cross over the river and reach Chicago? Well, actually, the river was so polluted, the river was on fire, which is interesting. The river jumping fire is partially explained by the high winds that spread the fire to wooden ships moored in the river. There was also another even more important factor in the spread of the fire. The river was a shallow, sluggish sewer for the city, The Union stockyards in Chicago, those are for uh, beef, dumped all their animal waste into the river. People called it the stinking river, the bubbly creek. It was so bad that the waste was actually combustible. All of this putrefaction flowed into Lake Michigan, where there was drinking water intakes for the city of Chicago. Waterborne diseases broke out every year through the 1880s and 1890s. About 10,000 people died from cholera, typhoid fever. In 1885, 14 years after the fire, nearly 100,000 people died from illnesses carried by the river's waters. 
Finally, city engineers took action. They started digging 28 miles of canal. They moved more earth and rocks than were moved building the Panama Canal. They set in locks and gates. Then on January 2nd, 1900, a worker opened a sluice gate at Lake Michigan and the entire Great Lakes flowed into the Chicago River, pushing it in a direction it had never flowed. They reversed the flow of a river. They reversed the flow of the Chicago River. It now flowed the opposite way into the canal, into the Des Plaines River, into the Illinois River, and into the Mississippi, where evidently they don't mind all that sewage. Welcome to America. All right. This brought a huge flow of fresh water. Instead of shallow, sluggish, diseased water making the community sick, the river now brought the city life. Some writers argued that Chicago would not even be around today had the flow of the Chicago River not been reversed. The American Society of Civil Engineers named it one of the engineering projects of the millennium. That's what Jesus does. He reverses the flow in your human soul. Now, I'm not saying we're all as bad as we could be. We're not. But we don't produce spiritual life. We can't. But when Jesus comes into our lives and we are born this second time, as he talks about when the Spirit of God creates spiritual life in us, up until then we've only produced spiritual death. Not as bad as we could be, but not spiritually alive. And then he changes everything. He reverses the flow. And you're a different person. And it's him doing it. Nobody earns it. That's the beauty of the gospel. God does it in us. Do you really want to be under the burden of, I have to be good enough. Am I good enough? Versus, God is changing me. I've embraced Jesus. He's in my life. And little by little, even though I'm not perfect, he's making me new. Well, you may be here today and say, that seems pretty simple, Paul. It is. So how do we engage that new birth? It's simply by faith. It's by recognizing what Jesus came to do, who he is, that he is the son of God, that what he did on the cross paid the penalty for our sins, and we're saying, I want that. I'm trusting in Jesus. I'm not trusting in myself like Nicodemus was at that time. And by the way, Nicodemus became a follower of Jesus and he's one of the individuals who took Jesus' dead body and put it into the tomb that we read about on Good Friday. Nicodemus found that good life. To enter into that life that Jesus offers is simply an act of faith. There are no magical words, but the words of this prayer sort of sum up what we are doing process. And if you've never made a commitment to follow Jesus, I just want to invite you in your heart of hearts as I read this through to sort of engage with this prayer and embrace this in your heart. Dear Jesus, I recognize my need for righteousness before a perfect and holy God. I'll never be good enough on my own. And I believe you are the Son of God. And I believe you died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. Only you can provide forgiveness and eternal life. So I look to your cross and resurrection as my hope. Come into my life as Savior and Lord.
in Jesus' name. Now again, there's nothing magical about those words, but there's a profound spiritual difference between that faith and trying to earn heaven on our own. In that situation, you're saying, I want Jesus to be my Savior. Versus, you are your Savior by trying to be good enough. You prayed that prayer today for the first time. The Bible teaches that God does engage with you in that moment and gives you spiritual life and reverses that flow in your soul. Gives you a rebirth as one of his children. God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the clarity of this story about Nicodemus, who was a lot like us, only better. But what's, what's clear is we live in a world that shares a lot of Nicodemus thinking, a world of a lot of religions, a lot of religions with ethics teaching us that, you know, if we just try a little harder, of course we can earn our way to heaven. Of course, of course heaven's gates will fly wide open for us, but we often don't realize that that's an insult to the greatest gift ever, the gift of Jesus, who truly was the Son of God, who paid the penalty for our sins on the cross so that we don't have to earn heaven. Rather, we need to recognize we need a Savior. We need somebody to rescue us. Help us to make sure that this issue is the clearest of issues in our lives, that we know we don't get this one wrong. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to BethanyChapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.